listener exclusive. I have a delicious secret. The Limestone Coast's Hidden Secrets. Lowestone Coasters, all thanks to Steel Line Roofing Mount Gambia, locally owned and operated for over 30 years. This week, Ep 12 of the Limestone Coast Hidden Secrets podcast. This week's code word is Antarctica. And today, I have got an epic tale for you. A bloke who grew up on a farm here in the Limestone Coast who became a polar explorer. We get to find out all the details in today's app of the Limestone Coast Hidden Secrets podcast. Peter Rymel joins me to talk about his dad. Now, as a kid, Peter was told bedtime stories about his dad's polar adventures, husky sledding teams and icy landscapes. And his late father, John Riddick Rymel, was the Australian leader of the British Graham Land expedition to Antarctica that took place between 1934 and 1937. We get to find out all about it. Peter joins me to talk about his dad and, of course, his polar exploits. It's about another hidden secret of the Limestone Coast. Peter, good morning. Good morning, Ewan. Peter, first of all, tell me a little bit about your dad. Well, the, the bedtime stories you mentioned was a good introduction because... My father learned his polar exploring trade from the Eskimo people of East Greenland. And prior to that, the expeditions of the heroic age usually ended up in disaster. But of course, the people who knew exactly how to cope with the polar conditions were the the indigenous people of Greenland. So my father was wise and lucky to treat them with respect and learn learn his trade from them. Peter, when you talk about John, I mean, was John just a, a typical knockabout sort of dad or did you did you look at him as this incredible adventurer, which he was? Oh, I thought all fathers were like that. So it, wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't really an issue. But the, the knockabout part, yes, when he finished his exploring, he, he was always looking for the future. He didn't want to live in the past. So... And he also knew he'd, his knowledge would become out of date pretty quickly. So he, when he finished, he came back to Panola and became a farmer again. And, and that's how I knew him. Well, Peter, I've got to ask the question, how did you come to write a book about your dad? Because that's essentially what it's all about. That's how we're telling the story. Right. Well, I was invited to join a polar cruise some years ago. And the funny thing was, I didn't want to. It was only later that I rationalized the situation and realized that I visualized the Antarctic in black and white and from my father's descriptions. And it perhaps felt a bit disloyal to go there myself and lift the curtain and see it in all its glorious color and living animals. So when I was asked a second time, I said, yes, thanks, and off we went. And that required quite a bit of homework for me to present PowerPoints as we went. Mm. And I also learned a lot. And at that time, I decided that it would be a good idea to write a travel book for future people going to the Antarctic Peninsula. And to do that, however, I quickly realized that I had to say quite a bit about my father and his Greenland expeditions where he had his jackarooing days. So it 
turn more into a biography, but the principal part of it is his Antarctic expeditions. So how did John Riddock Rymel find his love for the frozen wastelands of Antarctica? He was slightly dyslexic at school and not much good at anything other than uh, boxing, which he enjoyed. And but he, it was the time in the nineteen in the nineteen teens that Shackleton and Scott and I think Mawson were doing their exciting things in the Antarctic, and that got him reading the books in the school library. And so that helped overcome the dyslexia mm. and also gave him a, a ground floor interest in polar exploration. And Peter, what led him on the journey to, I, I suppose, ask people who lived in these these polar regions for for help and guidance and education to, to I suppose, chase the dream of, of being a polar explorer? Well, he realised that England was the place where it was all happening. There, there wasn't a great deal of that sort of activity in Australia, but England was where it was possible. They had the Scott Polar Research Institute and the Royal Geographical Society. And so he went there and got on to two Greenland expeditions, was the second in command of the second one, and the leader was drowned, so he took over. So through that sad circumstance, when he came home, he was rather in the box seat to lead an expedition to the Antarctic, which the English wanted, because they were still making their mind up about territorial claims, and so were the Americans. So it was quite an exciting time to see what, find out what was down there. And of course, uh, not just natural ability of, of growing up in Panola and, and being on a farm in Panola, but you know there was a power of work that, that went on to, to become the polar explorer and to lead an expedition. That's right. He set out to teach himself how to become one because there weren't any TAFE courses or university <laughs> courses at the time. So he went to the Royal Geographical Society and learnt survey, 11-figure algorithms, which must cure his dyslexia pretty quickly, I think, <laughs> and uh, astro-navigation. And curious things, he, he went to a cooking school because nutrition was a very important part of the whole deal. He, it was quite easy to learn to ski and mountaineer and sail little boats. But he learned to fly too. That was a bit of a novelty in the 1920s. So he, he equipped himself well for all the practical side of the the outfit. Tell me about the exhibition, Peter, uh, the expedition, because British Graham Land Expedition to Antarctica, it was over a number of years. It must have been gruelling. It was, although he said the hardest part was the year before when he had to raise the money because he had virtually no liquid assets of his own. His, his mother owned the property here and so he had to rally around and get sponsorship and most importantly convince the government to put some money into it and the Royal Geographical Society gave a thousand pounds and that gave him the credibility to approach the British government 
and they put in £10,000 and that amounted to about two-thirds of the total funds and I think the yeah, the final figure was £22,000 which is about $4 million in today's money. So Huge chunk of change, isn't it? Isn't it? He managed to raise that in in a few months and then had six months to put the expedition together, buy a ship and a plane and recruit the people. He had very good friends who had been with him in Greenland, so the the core management and leadership team he had ready-made, they were urging, urging him on, but uh, he was very relieved to sail down the Thames knowing that he had put the show together and I won't say from then on it was straightforward, but that was probably the hard part. What were the objectives of the expedition down to Antarctica, Peter? Wilkins, another Australian, had flown over the area and made a map which showed it was an archipelago. This is the part of the Antarctic that pokes up towards South America. And my father was going to go down one side of the archipelago, go through the channels and explore the other side as well. But when he got there, he found that there were no islands, no channels. It was a continuous peninsula. So he proved the ex existence of the Antarctic Peninsula and he crossed it. And the lowest pass he could find across it was higher than Mount Kosciuszko. So he had a nice team of high-altitude huskies. Tell me more about the expedition because as, as, as I said from 1934 to 1937 uh, John and the team were, were down in Antarctica or heading to Antarctica um, they covered a lot of ground and they they I suppose identified an awful lot of science that uh, that we take for granted these days yes yes there were four scientists on the expedition but he pretty soon turned them into dog drivers and sledges and <laughs> <laughs> navigators. And they grumbled a bit at first, but decided afterwards it was the highlight of their life. One of his major discoveries was the King George VI Sound, several hundred miles long. And two of the three who sledged down that and made that discovery were scientists and uh, so they felt rather pleased with themselves. But the back or the program of the expedition was the the ship that, that he named the Panola after well for obvious reasons um, was a bit old and by the time they got to the Falkland Islands the gearbox had fallen apart and so and they couldn't get any parts for it. But my father said, Well, plenty of people have sailed to the Antarctic that's why we shouldn't do the same. So they set off without any engines. But on the way, the excellent engineer managed to bolt things together. They never had reverse gear after that, but the, the, <laughs> it meant there was no turning back. And uh, they, with, with these delays, they couldn't get as far south as they wanted to initially. So they built a northern base, which, which we visited. It's quite easy to get to by modern means but then the second year they went 300 miles further south and established a southern base which cruise ships can only get to in late february due to ice conditions and not many of them go that far south but 
if anyone's thinking of going there, make sure you get down. If you cross the Antarctic Circle, you're getting into the right area. Peter, what was it like to follow in the footsteps of your dad and, and take a look around some of the areas of Antarctica where, where your dad was exploring? It was absolutely fascinating to see it in real life, to realise how horrific the conditions were. On the two long sledge journeys towards the end of the expedition, they were confined to their tents one day in three, by blizzards mm. and that sort of thing. So it was it was just great to see the see where they went, and they had various little boats too that they did surveys in. But I, I think the main thing I learned more actually perhaps more from writing the book was I obtained access to the diaries of the expeditioners. They'd been under an embargo until so many years after the last one of them died and I was lucky to be the first to get a look at them and was able to get into their lives, their minds, their interactions. It was a very harmonious expedition. They helped each other whenever they possibly could and I really, although I'd met maybe half of them myself, I, I got that, that gave me enough of an insight to see how they thought and what sort of people they were. So it was the human side of the thing that I really appreciated learning about. Peter, would, during the uh, the research for the book, did you uncover any secrets or anything that you that you thought was a bit of a surprise uh, about the expeditions? Well, that's a leading question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, lo lots of little things, just like the the money side of it. I had the final financials of the expedition and that let me sort a lot of things out. But the probably the most intriguing thing in answer to your question is there was a mutiny which hadn't been mentioned. The During the second year, the ship had to leave the shore party down at the southern base and go back to South Georgia for a refit in the, the whaling station. And in returning to pick up the expeditioners, one of the scientists was rather if that he was on the evening watch and he couldn't observe the feeding habits of the seabirds in the morning watch. And he uh, accosted the captain and an argument ensued and the captain put him under arrest and locked him in his cabin. Luckily, the whole thing calmed down overnight and uh, everything went on as normal. But, and, and I, I generally don't put negative items in my book, but that one was such an important one that it did affect the whole uh, sequence of the expedition. And to give the perspective of the captain, he was very young, he was only 26, and this was a very big command for him to have. Up until then, in the Navy, he'd had a superior officer to turn to for advice, mm. but he was separated from my father by then, so he didn't have that support. And I think, in my opinion, that's that's why things went a, a bit scratchy. <laughs> but and, and a mutiny is a, probably too strong a word, but certainly an altercation. So just uh, getting into that, this, the conflict between naval discipline, which was necessary to run the ship efficiently, uh, 
and the point of view of the scientist who wanted to do his bird watching I found that rather an intriguing little incident. Mm, absolutely. Peter, one of the things that I've read is that, among many other things, your dad picked up a British polar medal with silver bars for both the Arctic and Antarctic. Um, he must have been a remarkable bloke. Oh, alarm your son, so I wouldn't disagree. But yeah, the, the polar medals were interesting. The All the members of the previous Greenland expedition got a polar medal with an Arctic bar. And then there were five of them who joined my father in the Antarctic expedition. And they were, those five were awarded a second polar medal with an Antarctic bar. And those medals have become rather famous with numismatists, which not only collect coins, but also medals, I've learned. And they dubbed the, the five people in question as the famous fives. <laughs> They, they 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 got that accolade. Peter, I've got to ask, do you still have the medals? We do indeed. That is sensational. Peter, um, as a son looking at the exploits of his father, is there anything that you found surprising in in what your dad managed to achieve in a in a long life? I think the thing I learnt most was his qualities of leadership and his psychology of keeping well there were 16 in the expedition and they were away from England for three years down in the Antarctic for over two and often all living in the same room and I found a rather good quote of his that I put in my book but he makes the point that you've just got to be so careful that you don't upset others by the way you cough or where you do just trivial things, I'm sure you can imagine it. If you live as close to that as somebody else, the things people do tend to get on each other's nerves. And that, I think, was the big thing I learned. And aside of him, I didn't know that his, his skill in managing people and maintaining harmony were, were, were paramount. Peter, your book is called polar pioneer um how can people get a copy of it well my gambia people can get one from the riddick gallery so quite close to home we've we had a panola launch just before christmas and we're planning to have an adelaide one at the south australian museum in a month or so we're still working that out and that'll get a, a wider distribution at present, it's either the Riddick Gallery or the Panola News Agency, or the, or the Robe News Agency. And Peter, are people bl as blown away as I am that, look, I honestly had no idea that your dad, John, had had the life that he had had. I have found it fascinating to talk to you. Are people as blown away? Oh, gosh, you'd have to ask them that. <laughs> uh, what do I think? People in the know polar enthusiasts, of which there are more in England than Australia, were pretty familiar with what he did. He, uh, he wasn't so well known in Australia because he was basically exploring in English territory. Although one thing I learned from the book, getting back to a previous question, when the authorities, the Admiralty, who awards the polar medals, on behalf of the monarch were running through their checklist 
they noticed that it was difficult for a private expedition to win polar medals. It was mainly government expeditions. And they made the point that my father's expedition was a private expedition. Now, he was an Australian, so was it an Australian expedition rather than an English one? And I make the point that it's lucky that both nations at the time were British, so that solves that one. <laughs> Peter, it's been a delight to talk to you. It's been fascinating to find out a little bit about your dad. Uh, thank you so much for talking about Polar Pioneer with us this morning. Many thanks. I've enjoyed it, Ewan. Thank you. Listener.